to your congregation. There's a very helpful way of thinking about our salvation that I've given you there in the introduction on the outline. I think I may have said that here before, but I'll say it again. It's a very helpful way to think about what God has done in saving us. And the, the way this is stated is that we have a threefold problem and that God provides a threefold solution. So in the first place, we have a bad heart. Our heart is naturally inclined to sin. In the second place, we have a bad record. That means in the courtroom of God, we have a record. We have violated his law. And, there, and that's all documented in God's book, in God's courtroom. We have a bad record. And we have a bad life. The bad life really just springs from the first one, the bad heart. We have a bad heart. And that bad heart leads us, leads, leads us uh, not only are we inclined to sin because we have a bad heart, but we actually sin. We have a bad life. Now to that threefold problem, God has a threefold solution. He offers us a new heart. And he works these things in the hearts and lives of his people. A new heart. Now it's important, I think, that we learn the theological terms for these, for these things. We, uh, when you read books of theology, they will call that regeneration. Regeneration. When God gives his people a new heart. Right? It's the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Unless a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So God takes our bad heart. He gives us a new heart. Regeneration. A rebirth. We also have a bad record, and again, God gives us a new record. A new record. It's the perfect record of Christ. What does your record look like? If I went and looked at your file, if I can put it this way reverently, if I looked at your file in heaven, what would I see? Sin after sin. But now uh, God, in His mercy, takes the perfect record of Christ, His spotless record, without a slightest sin, not a flaw on it, and he imputes that to us. Now, he also imputes our bad record to him, and that's why Christ goes to the cross, to be punished for our sin. But we receive from Christ a perfect, spotless, flawless record, so that when God looks at our file in heaven, again, I say this reverently, when God looks at our file in heaven, he sees no sin, and that's justification. We're put right with God. Our record is spotlessly cleansed. God gives us a new record. And then God gives us a new life. And the actual sins that we commit from day to day, the Spirit of God, or God, uh, baptizes us in the Spirit, right? And the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. And over time, right, this is now a process. God continues to work in the lives of His people to sanctify them and to make them holy. A bad heart, a bad record, and a bad life. And God's salvation addresses each of those things. A new heart, a new record, and a new life. And that new life, of course, sanctification. So again, these terms, I think they're important, right? Our children learn them in Sunday school. 
Regeneration, God gives us a new heart. Justification, God gives us a new record. And sanctification, God gives us a new life. Now today is a catechism a sermon. And the catechism question and answer that we've come to, I think will make more sense to us when we keep those three things in our minds. So let's back up then on the outline and look at the catechism, which is question 70 where it asks us, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? Now let's recall that last Sunday, we found that the basic picture of baptism is a cleansing. That Christ instituted this washing, right? To be a sign and a picture to us of our salvation. So now the catechism is zeroing in, not so much on the visible sign, because that's clear enough, right? We understand that when water is applied to a body, It's usually applied for the purpose of washing or cleansing. That picture is clear enough to us. But now what is the invisible reality that that visible sign is meant to point us to? That's what the catechism is now going to zero in on. What exactly is that invisible reality that the visible sign points to? And the catechism gives us this twofold answer. And notice that the distinction here is between being washed in Christ's blood and being washed in Christ's spirit. That's the the distinction that's being made in this answer. So the first part is to be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. Again, we'll explain that. But that's what it means to be washed with Christ's blood. But in the second place... To be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Well, let's consider then these things. Washing and cleansing, says the Catechism, is a a picture of this whole process. I gave you a threefold problem and God's threefold solution. And now the Catechism is saying that What we see in our eyes, that visible sign, is a sign to us of that whole reality. And it makes the division between being washed in Christ's blood and washed with Christ's spirit. So let's first consider then what it means to be washed in Christ's blood. Now I have three points here to help us understand this idea of being washed in Christ's blood. And the first one is just a repeat of what I gave you last week. Remember that Concepts in the New Testament are explained by reference to the Old Testament. That when we find things unclear in the New Testament, we have to go to our dictionary. We have to go to our lexicon, as it were. And we we understand these New Testament teachings in light of the Old Testament teaching. Again, I said that's such a critical point when we talk about uh, so many things in the New Testament. So I want to make that point in the first place. We are going to go back to the Old Testament to try to understand what it means to be washed in Christ's blood. Second, we must not think now of of being washed in Christ's blood as, like when we take water, we wash an object off. An object may be dirty, right? And you'll take water, right, if your hands are dirty, or whatever it may be that's dirty, a dish is dirty, and you'll apply water to it to wash it, to cleanse it, and to make it clean again. 
But if you take that route to think about being washed in Christ's blood, you're, you're kind of going down the wrong way. Now again, the reason I'm saying this is because of what we are taught in the Old Testament about blood. So blood itself is not a cleansing agent. right? You don't apply blood to things to clean it. So that in the second place. We, we're, we're not to think here of, of cleansing something by pouring blood on it and washing it with blood. Third, the third thing here, and again, now I'm in the Old Testament, blood is a symbol for death. Blood is a symbol for death. Now here I think that you can clearly see that in the Old Testament, when, you, when the Old Testament talks about shedding of blood, it's talking about the animal giving its life to make atonement. Atonement is that process by which God cleanses our record. And again, I'm using the language from our threefold problem that when we sin, we bring guilt upon ourselves. And guilt requires punishment because God's justice requires to be satisfied. And God's justice can only be satisfied by punishment. Now, the punishment for sin, right, was given us way back in Genesis. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so sin deserves death. So how is our record cleansed? How is our record washed clean or wiped clean? Well, it is wiped clean. It is cleansed by death. Not by pouring blood on it and scrubbing it, right? That, that's not the right picture. Right? The picture here is that when an animal died, it gave its life. And in the same way, when a person is executed, right? when a person has committed a, a crime and they pay for that crime with their life, they satisfy the justice. It can be the justice of a nation. But in, in this context, it satisfies the justice of God. And we can make atonement by dying ourselves, by God taking our life. But the gospel, right, is the glorious news that Christ takes our death and he makes atonement for us and because of that atonement being made, our record is wiped clean. The guilt is taken away. No different than if you received a ticket. Say you received a, a ticket and, and the officer gave you the ticket and you, you looked it up and you owe $120 to the city of Kalamazoo. And once you make atonement for your guilt by paying the $120, your record is now clean again. The justice of God has nothing, sorry, the justice of Kalamazoo County has no, nothing against you any longer because you've made atonement for that sin. You've paid the price. Now, in the same way, in God's courtroom, our record is cleansed by death. And blood, my friends, is just a symbol for death. When we say we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, Sometimes I think we confuse that, right? We, we think of blood as kind of a cleansing agent, but that's, that's not the right way to think of it. We are, we are saved by the death of Christ, and that's what we mean when we say the blood of Christ. That's what blood means in the Old Testament. You can think, my friends, of, of when a sacrifice took place in the Old Testament, right, and that animal was brought, and do you remember the actions of the person who brought that animal? He laid his hands upon that animal. You remember that language from the Old Testament? He laid his hands on that animal. And, and, and the, the language in the Old Testament is that he leaned. He, he put his weight on that animal. 
And then you'll remember the awful knife of the priest came right in and gashed that animal's neck and the blood of that animal spilled out and it, was, and it died there, right? But when was that animal struck dead? When the weight of that man, the weight of that woman leaned on that animal. Then the guilt of that person was imputed, was transferred, as it were, to that animal. And now that animal has to die because it has guilt upon its record. And it's struck dead. And its blood is poured out. Not that there's anything special in the blood, right? But the blood is a symbol that the life of that animal is ebbing away. And it's, it's a symbol that we all understand, right? Uh, blood, when blood leaves the body, we know we're dying. Right? That, that, that blood flow has to be stopped or we're going to die. And that's the picture. That the life of that animal is my life. And when that animal gives up its life, I am, in a sense, dying with that animal. And therefore, my record is cleansed. So, my friends, what does it mean to be washed in Christ's blood? Well, if we return to the Catechism, it says, to be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. So Christ's death is my death. And because of that, atonement is made and my sins are forgiven. To have your sins forgiven means to have your record cleansed, wiped clean. That means, my friends, that to be washed with Christ's blood means to be justified. Justification is the result, is what we receive from this washing in Christ's blood. And our record is wiped clean. Christ made a substitution. He made atonement for us. Now I want to point out to you, my friends, that this washing in Christ's blood is not something that takes place within us. This is not something that let, let, it, we can say it's not a surgery Right, that takes place where God puts something right within us. This is something that takes place in God's courtroom. It takes place outside of us. In the same way that when you paid that ticket, right, your record was wiped clean in the courthouse of Kalamazoo County or whatever the records are kept. And that's what justification is. Right? We studied that in previous Lord's Days when we studied the uh, justification. That our record is cleansed. And that's something that takes place outside of us. Christ's blood cleanses our bad record. Now let's go in the second place to what it means to be washed in Christ's spirit. If Christ's blood, and again, it's, it's perfectly synonymous to say Christ's death, blood, death, are the same things here. Christ's blood cleanses our bad record. Christ's spirit cleanses our bad heart. Now this is something different. Now we are talking about something that takes place within us. The Holy Spirit did not shed His blood for us. The Holy Spirit did not die in our place. He does not make atonement for us. The Holy Spirit has a different function in the design and plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit gets within us. He has a work to do inside of us. This is surgery now, isn't it? This is now the doctor cuts us open and does surgery. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit gets within us. 
So to be washed in the Spirit, in, the spirit, in Christ's Spirit, is something very different. The Spirit of God does not resolve our guilt problem, but He resolves the pollution problem that we have within. Our soul needs to be cleansed. Now, what does it mean then to be washed with the Spirit? Well, again, here we can, we can turn to different passages in Scripture and see what it means. Now, one that will be very familiar to you is Galatians chapter 5. What's in Galatians chapter 5 at the end? Do you remember that? Oh, it's on the outline here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Do you see the difference now? What the Spirit does within us, different than what Christ does for us. That's why theologians will often say, Christ for us, the Holy Spirit within us. Because Christ does a work for us in God's courtroom. The Spirit of God does a work within us. And here we see that the fruit of the Spirit, right? the fruit of the Spirit is not justification or atonement being made for us or substitution or shedding His blood for us, right? The fruit of the Spirit, says Paul, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you know that list. You probably memorized that list at some point in your life. You see, the Spirit of God has its work upon our character. We begin to act differently. It is an inner renewal of our character. Now, there's another very important verse that really illustrates this for us very well, and it's Ephesians 5. This is such, a, such an interesting verse because it, it teaches us what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Look at your outline there, or you can turn to Ephesians 5 and verse 15. But here Paul says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk with wine. Now children, what, is, what happens to a person who is drunk with wine? Right, A person who is drunk... Is, is not acting under the influence of his own reason, right? of his own self-control. He's under the influence of something else. right? That's why we call it under the influence. Right? And he, they stagger about, right? and they say things that are utterly foolish, right? and, and all these things that drunk people do. So we recognize a person when they're drunk because they're not acting themselves, are they? They're acting like fools. They're under the influence. But then Paul continues, and he puts in parallel, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul wants us to understand these two things in parallel, that there's this similarity between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. That when you are filled with the Spirit, my friends, you are under the influence. Just as being drunk with wine, you're under the influence of a chemical, when you are filled with the Spirit, you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God Himself. He, has, he, has, he, he dwells within you, and He leads you, not that you lose your own reason or your own mind, right? But He so sanctifies you, I mean, again, much of this is mysterious, right, how this works, but He so sanctifies your mind, your soul, your heart, that we are led, motivated to walk 
in the ways of holiness. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul goes on, he says, one manifestation of being filled with the Spirit is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, hope to have Thanksgiving Day, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So to be cleansed with the Holy Spirit, my friends, means that our soul, our inner character, is cleansed from all the sinful emotions, all the sinful desires and inclinations, right? And we know this is a process. This doesn't happen at once, right? It is a process take place over our time. But to be washed in the Holy Spirit means that we begin to be cleansed of those sinful emotions. Christ's blood cleanses our bad record. Christ's spirit cleanses our bad heart. Now, the text that we read this evening was Hebrews 10. And I love that text because I think it brings together these two washings into one text. Hebrews 10. Now, of course, we would expect to find something like this in Hebrews because, again, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were very familiar with all these washings and purification rituals that took place in the Jewish religion. So we're not surprised to find this kind of language in in, uh, Hebrews. But if you look with me at Hebrews 10 and verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So notice forgiveness of these things, that means forgiveness of these sins and lawless deeds that were mentioned in the previous verse. There's no longer any offering necessary when those sins have been forgiven. There is no longer any offering for sin and then put in the word necessary. No more offering is necessary because your sins, your guilt has been forgiven. Your record has been wiped clean. And the apostle, or the uh, the author of Hebrews goes on here, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. How did we get the right to walk through that curtain and to go into the very holy of holies in the temple. Same thing in the tabernacle. Why do we have a right to do that? Because of the blood of Jesus. And again, when you see blood, read death. By the death of Jesus. By a new and living way, verse 20, which he inaugurated or which he established, which he laid out for us through the veil. Remember that veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place? Well, that veil was torn apart And now the author here says that veil was the flesh of Jesus. That the flesh of Jesus was torn in the same way that that veil was torn. And what was the result of it? Access into the holy place. The most holy place. The very presence of God. Because in that most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of God's presence. You're coming into the very presence of the holy God. And why? Because the Flesh of Jesus was torn. Furthermore, in verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Our high priest, my friends, is not some man, not some some Levitical priest. It is the Son of God himself. He takes us by the hand and he brings us. He's the priest and he brings us into the very presence of God. That's verse 21. And so verse 22 then is the conclusion. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's clearly a reference to baptism. Our bodies are washed with pure water. That's the visible sign that we see take place in this church. A visible sign. Our bodies are washed with pure water. Verse 22. But there's also an invisible and inner reality. And our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And the sprinkling with water that takes place here at this font, the washing of the body, is just a visible sign of an invisible reality, which is our hearts being sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus. And the result is a clean conscience, a pure conscience, not a guilty conscience any longer, but a conscience that has been cleansed from guilt. Why? Because that sprinkling of that blood, my friends, has canceled our record, our bad record in God's courtroom. And where there's no guilt, there's no reason for any guilt feeling. There's no reason for a guilty conscience when our guilt has been completely expunged. So I think in verse 22, you have, first of all, a reference to baptism. By the way, I found it interesting that here baptism is, is, is clearly called a sprinkling. That's very interesting to me. I didn't have time to go farther into it, but even the Baptist commentators that I read acknowledge that this is a reference to baptism. That's not really that controversial. That this is a reference to baptism is, is very clear. It's not, that's not really debated all that much. But notice that the bodies being washed with pure water is in parallel with being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I think that's a certainly would imply that baptism is legitimately performed with a sprinkling. But at any rate, that aside, clearly then we have here a a sprinkling with blood and a washing with water. So our record is cleansed. But now if we carry on, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is now that second washing. This is being washed with the Spirit of God, being baptized with the Spirit. Not speaking in tongues, right? The apostle has so little interest in that. But stimulating one another to love. The apostle's always interested in love, right? He always puts love first. Love and good deeds. And then a specific thing that he mentions in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I think that's such a beautiful chapter, isn't it? A beautiful set of verses, so clearly holding forth before us this baptism, the being sprinkled clean, our record being cleansed by the blood of Christ, and our hearts our souls being cleansed by the Spirit of Christ, by stimulating one another to do good deeds, to be loving, to assemble together on the Lord's Day, and to worship the holy name of God. Holding fast our confession. So you see those two washings there, which brings me now to my application. Just one application, my friends, because I have a question for you this evening. Please listen now. A question for everyone. Do you have a guilty conscience? 
And I address the question to myself tonight as well. Do you have a guilty conscience? And a guilty conscience is always fired up by the memory of past sins. And it's an awful thing to live with. That is somebody we would just soon dismiss out of our house as quickly as possible. That's not a welcome guest, is it? That's such a heavy burden to bear. Do we remember Pilgrim? Remember Christian and Pilgrim's progress? Remember, children, what he has on his back at the very beginning of that story? That heavy burden. And a guilty conscience is such a heavy burden to carry. How can I get that guilty conscience resolved? How can I get that burden cut off my back? Well, my friends, if that's going to take place, two things have to happen. First, the guilt has to be dealt with. Second, the guilt feeling has to be dealt with. But in that order, the guilt itself has to be resolved. What possible good would it do just to dismiss the guilt feeling if the guilt is still there? Right? When you, if you go to the doctor with cancer, he doesn't put a Band-Aid over it. The cancer has to be dealt with. And in the same way, my friends, the guilt has to be dealt with. If you have a guilty conscience this evening, I ask you to listen. Your guilt has to be resolved, and your guilt feeling has to be resolved. Those conscience pangs that are such torture to live with. Now, there's all sorts of different methods you can deal with this. The first thing you can do is just adjust your moral code so the behavior that you're regretting is not sinful. Just dial back your moral code so that, right, if you, if you committed such a sin, just adjust your moral code so that it's not sinful anymore. And if it's not sinful, of course, then you're not guilty and the guilt feeling will go away as well. But that never works, does it? That doesn't resolve the problem because at the end of the day, you still know you're guilty. You know that the law of God still pronounces against it. Now, let me just say at this point that there are some things that people do that are not guilty. People have uh, things that are in their upbringing that maybe they were raised with, uh, that their conscience bothers them for, and, and because they, 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 they assume it's sinful, but it's not. Uh, that is a reality. But now I talk about something, my friends, that is clearly sinful. Let's leave those difficult cases aside a moment and talk about something that's clearly sinful. We have this burden that we carry, this conscience that accuses us and stabs us and, and constantly tortures us with these guilt feelings. You can't just adjust your moral code so that whatever was sinful in the past isn't sinful anymore. That, that doesn't work. Your conscience isn't going to go away. The second method, you can get rid of the judge. Become an atheist. Dismiss God entirely. Just walk away from religion. Walk away from Christ. Walk away from that dreadful law that's constantly pounding you and accusing you. Become an atheist. And I seriously wonder how much atheism isn't just exactly this. I can't stand to live with that guilty conscience. I can't stand to carry that burden around any longer. So I'll just dismiss the judge. But of course... Your conscience, my friends, is, has a direct wire to the divine in some very mysterious way. It won't stop talking. It won't stop speaking. There's a third method, not really available to many of us, but was very common in church history, and that is go to the priest. 
Go to the sacrament of penance. Go to the confessional. Sit down and unburden your soul to the priest. And the priest will give you various things to do. Repeat these verses for the next month. Say this prayer for the next two months. And spend 30 hours in the downtown soup kitchen. And your conscience will be cleansed. And then the priest says those words. I absolve you. Those are such empty words, aren't they? Because you know in your heart that only God can say that. It doesn't matter what a man says to me. That priest can talk all he wants. His forgiveness is no forgiveness. My conscience still speaks against me. I still have got that burden on my back. You know, in one sense, it's kind of a nice thing, isn't it? Why, if you had a bad conscience, you could just go to the priest, right? And you can sit down there and he resolves your problem for you and you go on your way. It's manageable, right? Now I can kind of manage my guilt myself. I just go to the priest, I confess it, but it's so empty. Now, my friends, the fourth method, the fourth thing you could do is the most unthinkable thing of all. And that is take your guilt to God. It's unthinkable because you know that God has a spotless holiness. And he cannot look on sin and pardon it. He cannot just dismiss it. He cannot just look away from it. He cannot say, I'll just let you off this time. And so the most awful option here is the last one, to go into the presence of a holy God with my guilt. But you see, my friends, the whole sermon's been building up to this point because that's the gospel. Is that when we go to God owning our guilt and we lay it before him, you don't even have to lay it before him because he already sees your conscience. He sees your heart. But when we lay it before God, when we confess it to him, we own our own guilt. We say, Lord, this is my sin. And the beautiful thing of the gospel is God has a solution for both the guilt and the guilt feeling. Because God will say, I'll wash you in the death of my son. And that resolves your guilt problem. I'll sprinkle your heart with the blood of Christ. And your record is wiped clean. That's the first thing. Your guilt is resolved. But God goes on to say, I'll resolve the guilt feelings, the conscience pangs. And that too, my friends, is resolved by the Spirit of God coming down into our life. And one of the things the Spirit of God, one of the things that he does, one of the most beautiful things he does, is he points us to the work of Christ. He directs our eyes of faith to see what is a reality if you're a believer in Christ this evening. And he says, look, look into God's courtroom and see the sprinkled blood there. That should have been your blood, but it was Christ's blood in your place. And your record is expunged. It is clean. It is cleansed. And now the guilt feeling is resolved as well. My friends, if you try to resolve your guilty conscience in any other way than what the scripture has set before us this evening, you will fail. You will fail, my friends. And I have to say one more thing about that. That the pain of hell will be the force of your guilty conscience.
pounding at you for a never-ending eternity. That will be the fire of hell. So we are taught that it's a worm that never dies. But my friends, the happy message of the gospel today is this beautiful truth. It's captured for us in 1 John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That was those methods, right? Try to dial down the moral code or just get rid of the judge. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we take it to God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins because of that sprinkled blood. But that's not all. There's another washing. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the washing of the Spirit. That now the Spirit of God begins to work. He begins and He brings with Him love, peace, gentleness, goodness, joy, and all the other ones that I can't remember right now. All those things He brings with Him. In the blood of Christ, our sins are forgiven. In the cleansing of the Spirit, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And this glorious reality, my friends, has found its way into our hymnody. I wonder if you've ever thought about this when you sang, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood. Do you see that? The the, uh, top lady, when he wrote this hymn, said, Let the water and the blood. And you've got to keep that in your mind here. From thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. So there's two cures here. Save from wrath. Right, that's my record being cleansed. That's the blood of Christ being sprinkled upon me. And make me pure. And that's the cleansing of the Spirit of God coming into my soul, coming into my heart, and giving me love and joy and goodness and gentleness and patience and so on. That's the good news of the gospel, my friends. That's what it means to be baptized. That's what it means uh, to be really baptized, to have both the visible sign and the invisible reality. And we see that in the second part of our catechism, right? So beautifully where it states that to be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed. Great, you can think of He's given us a new heart. He's renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ. We're joined to Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. All that, my friends, in the sprinkling that takes place here from time to time. Isn't that a beautiful picture given us? You never can plumb the depths of what a beautiful thing a baptism is. I hope you can sense something of it tonight. And that when we have a baptism, we rejoice to see and rejoice to believe. May God grant it to us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we beg your forgiveness for the many times we watched a baptism with a cold, unfeeling heart. Because today and this evening, Lord, you have taught us so clearly that there is both a forgiveness of sins and a being cleansed from all unrighteousness. That there is both a being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, removing our guilty conscience, and our bodies being washed with pure water. Oh, what a picture this is 
What a glorious picture of our salvation. Lord, help us then to remember our own, uh, remember our own baptism insofar as that's possible and to see the baptism of others with a new eyes and to rejoice in Christ our Savior, to rejoice in the Holy Spirit our Savior, to rejoice in these twin washings, to rejoice in this double cure, saved from wrath and cleansed from sin. Lord, will you bless us then this evening. Bless us as we return to our homes. We pray for a good night's rest. And that as we take up our work in the coming week, our hearts would be full of joy because of the truths that we were able to meditate on this day. And I pray, Lord, that all the days of our life we would go in the strength of the Lord our God and live a life of praise to Him. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 194. Number 194. Gracious Savior, gentle shepherd, our little ones are dear to thee. Gathered with thine arms and carried in thy bosom may they be. Sweetly, gently, safely tended from all want and danger free. The four verses of number 194 in the Red Hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.